welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23rd, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil from Cover 2 Resources. Beginning in 1996, when pain became the fifth vital sign in medicine, doctors got used to prescribing opioids to their patients for pain. As we now know, over the next 15 years, prescriptions for opioids spiked and hundreds of thousands got addicted. Most of them, though, were ultimately cut off by their doctors that initially prescribed the medication. It seems that they all knew how to titrate up pain medication, but little, if any of them, knew how to titrate down. My guest today, Travis Reeder, a faculty member at Johns Hopkins Berman Institute of Bioethics, experienced this firsthand after a motorcycle accident, and he went on to write a book that he titled In Pain. So, Travis, it's tremendous to have you here. Welcome. Thank you. I'm very glad to be here. I'm looking forward to hearing the whole story and what compelled you to write In Pain uh, today. But as we begin, can you speak to what a bioethicist does? That's a really good question to start things off, given the subtitle. Uh, Yeah, so if you ask 10 different bioethicists uh, what bioethics means, you'll get 10 different answers, which is a strange property for an academic field to have. But basically, the way I think of bioethics is that it is a question about what we ought to do, what's good and bad, what policies we ought to adopt regarding, say, medicine, public health, science and technology, and adjacent fields. So a lot of bioethicists spend their time working closely with hospitals. Um, And so they do clinical ethics consultations or they write about clinical encounters. I actually have spent most of my time as a bioethicist uh, working on large scale public health problems. Uh, So before I got into the current topic that we're going to discuss, I was working on climate change ethics and questions about sustainability and land use and overpopulation. So I tend to have my eyes kind of focused on these very large uh, public health crises and what we should do in the face of them. Let's get into your story. This all begins with your motorcycle accident, and I believe it was in 2015, wasn't it? That's right. May 23rd, 2015, a date I will not soon forget. Tell us about that. So uh, I went out for a ride. This was Memorial Day weekend, so it was kind of a celebratory environment. I was going to go meet a buddy and go on a day-long motorcycle ride. I've been riding for 10 years. had had lots of different motorcycles. And uh, on this particular morning, I got geared up and put on all of my leather and body armor, which always makes me feel safer than it probably should. You know, I've been riding year round. I didn't even have a car for about a decade. Um, I would take my bike to the racetrack and do track day training. Um, So yeah, I've got a lot of experience riding and, and I do consider myself to be safe. And so I always wear uh, you know, full track gear. So the kind of gear you would wear if you're doing 150 miles an hour at the track, I'd wear that just to commute. Um, and, and I thought this made me <laughs> safe from the elements, but it turns out, uh, when you get hit by a car, it doesn't really matter what you're wearing. There's a lot of damage that can happen. Um, so yeah, so that's what happened. I was about three blocks from my house, 
just getting out, kind of settling in. And uh, a young man um, blew a stop sign. Basically, we're still in my neighborhood. And he pulled out without even seeing me and, and T-boned me, struck me square on the left side of the bike. And what the trauma surgeon thinks happened is um, my foot was basically crushed between the bumper or the front of the van and then the plastic fairing on my motorcycle. So um, I had big old fancy armored boots on, but there's nowhere for that pressure to go. And so the bones of my foot shattered and all those little bone shards kind of turned into shrapnel. And so it tore a huge hole out through the inside of my foot. Wow. Yeah, not great. So what happened next? Basically... That sort of injury, um, you know, things that I never knew prior to this, uh, that sort of injury is pretty catastrophic because when you have that much soft tissue damage, that much bone damage, it's totally unclear whether the foot itself can survive. So I was in what's called a limb salvage situation where the doctors see the immediate threat as having to amputate the foot. And then uh, they try to engage in reconstruction and, and see if the, the tissue will survive. So over the course of what would eventually be six surgeries total, but the first five occurred in that first month in three different hospitals with lots of different specialty teams. Um, they were slowly pulling bone shards together, kind of lining up new bone structure, um, getting the foot stabilized. And then surgery number five was the solution for this very strange problem, which is that if you have a large enough wound, you can't just sew it closed, right? You can't just stitch it or staple it. And so I had lost so much flesh on that foot that one of the reasons they might need to amputate it is just that there's no way to close the wound. So we, had, we now have really sophisticated limb salvage technology and techniques. And so what they did is a, a group of different surgical teams rotated in through a nine-hour surgery, and they did what's called a free flap or sometimes called a muscle flap. And so they made an incision from my left hip to my knee, and they carved out uh, fat and muscle to kind of cushion the bone and plug the hole, uh, skin to cover it, like so skin graft that goes over the top. But it's so much transplanted tissue that it needs its own blood supply. And so they clip out an artery and microsurgically attach the artery to the existing infrastructure. And then it's such a big space that they want me to be able to sense something someday so that if I step on a nail or hot coals or whatever, I'll be able to sense danger. And so they clipped a nerve out of my thigh and microsurgically transplanted that to the foot's existing infrastructure. So that was the big surgery. That was a free flap. Oh, my. That is so extensive. That, that's incredible. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I call it my science foot. Uh, also, my half million dollar foot. Uh, yeah. So pretty, pretty impressive. What about the pain during this whole time? Absolutely unimaginable. Um, you know, in the immediate aftermath of the accident, it was like nothing I'd ever experienced before. Um, people have various pains throughout their lives. I, I had had various pains throughout my life, uh, athletic injuries, et cetera. And I had just never experienced anything like this. Um, I, I write in the book that, you know, the EMTs and everybody are getting me stabilized on the side of the road that first day. And I'm not even a person who would normally think of this. But by the time they're finally getting me immobilized or worried about neck and back injuries, et cetera, I'm like, do you have morphine on the ambulance? Like, you have to get something in my system. I'm just going to start smashing my head against the, the street, you know. Um, 
And so my very good, my new, new, very good friend of the EMC said, we will get you hooked up. And so I remember that first shot of morphine pretty well. And uh, yeah, I had several experiences throughout the following months where I would get behind the pain, you know, that first night in the hospital after surgery, number one, you know, nobody was there kind of individualizing my pain management and it spiraled out of control. And that was to this day, the only time I've ever recorded a 10 on the pain scale. And I just thought I was going to die just from the sheer fire pain in my foot. Um, and uh, the, the pain after that fifth surgery, you know, they, they did all that cutting and sewing on the foot and expanding the wound. But then also I had this new massive traumatic site where they, they carved out a part of my thigh and that was nightmarish. So yeah, I just became really intimately familiar with pain procedure after procedure, you know, even between surgeries, I have this giant wound in my foot. So it's packed with uh, what's called a wound back, um, which basically applies negative pressure to, to stimulate healing. And so every day or two, a nurse has to come to me either in the hospital or out at my house and pull this sponge out of my foot, you know, that's trying to stick and cling and act like skin. And just so much of this sort of injury is just, it's the stuff of nightmares. So you're pretty much at a crossroads there for somebody that could have gone down that road of chronic pain patient who's on opioids for the rest of his life. And at some point in time, you probably recognize that, uh-oh, wait a second, while this stuff is working, I, I can't stay on this stuff. Is that how it happened? You, you know, it's funny. That's probably how it should have happened. Um, but it never did occur to me, to be honest. Um, you know, the work of recovering from a major trauma is constant. You know, I slept a lot. I was heavily medicated. My partner, Sadia, um, is taking care of our one and a half year old, um, going to work. She's got a demanding career as a research scientist, you know, trying to take care of me when I'm home from the hospital, holding the house together. Uh, and I'm just, you know, constantly watching the clock, popping pills, trying to, to not feel like, you know, my life is over. And that was, that was our entire life. You know, it was very singularly focused. And so the short answer is no, I never stopped and thought, well, this probably isn't great. Um, more than that, I was just grateful that I had pain medication because I was so scared from those undermedicated moments. And, um, by the end of a couple of months of that basic uh, way of living after the, after the initial accident, um, I had slowly started backing off the pain medication just because I felt like I didn't need it as much, but very slowly. And that was when I went to a checkup with my original orthopedic surgeon and he asked about my pain and what I'm doing for it. And I kind of added up all the Oxycontin and the immediate release Oxycodone and the gabapentin for the nerve pain. And we report this to him and he gets his eyes just get real wide. He kind of slows down in his movements and he says, Travis, that's, that's way too much. This has gone on too long. You really have to get off the meds now. And so he was really the one who had that moment, but it did not occur to me on my own. You know, part of his response was, you know, hey, you've got to get off these meds. But the second part of his response was, that's not my job. 
So, so, you know, we, Ouch. Yeah, so we asked him, well, how do we do it? You know, can he just stop taking them? He'll probably have a lot of pain. And his response was, well, no, you can't, you, you've been on these for months. You can't just stop. Um, you'll go into withdrawal. You'll have to get a tapering schedule. And Sadia says, so, so what should the schedule look like? What do we do? You know, she's ready to take notes. And he's like, well, you know, that talk to your prescriber who's been, who's been picking up the prescribing since then, which happened to have been the plastic surgeon, not him the ortho surgeon. So, so it is true. Like, um, I was excited that, you know, looking back that he thought to say this has gone on too long. Um, but he was also really quite unhelpful in terms of, you know, helping me to get where I needed to be. Got it. So what happened next? So we did go to the plastic surgeon who'd been writing the prescriptions since discharge and, uh, contrary to the ortho surgeon's, um, seriousness, the plastic surgeon was just kind of, oh, yeah, you know, if you think you're ready, tapering is a good idea, of course. Um, you know, so, hey, sure, let's do it. <laughs> like, okay. Um, so, so we were told we needed a tapering schedule. What should we do? And uh, what should have been our first clue that this was not going to go well, he had to kind of stop and think about it in that way that someone does when they're making something up. And uh, he said, okay, take your daily dose of all the meds you know, the opioids and the gabapentin, divide it into four, and then each week drop a quarter of your starting daily dose. So you'll be off the meds in a month. And we had no reason to question that. Neither one of us had had worked in this field. We didn't have any expertise. Um, but, uh, but I should say up front, you know, just in case anyone listens and stops listening after this, that that's really horrible advice. Um, so it's, it's the kind of tapering regimen that you would give somebody if your goal was to make them suffer maximally, right? Um, the, the 25% dose reduction is so aggressive that if a patient has uh, physical dependence on the pills, they will go into acute withdrawal, but it's still only 25%, which means it'll take you four weeks to get through it. And so if you follow that that plan, you'll be in withdrawal for a month, which is exactly what happened to me. And I, I went on to be in withdrawal for about 29 days. Whoa. So you were disciplined. You tried to stick with it. Well, and you, you gutted it out. <laughs> you know, it sounds like discipline when I say it quickly and I, I, you know, selfishly, it makes me sound good. I wish that was the, the right description, but, but I think more than anything, it was, uh, so a, nobody would help us do better. And so as soon as I got sick, you know, you know, these opioids have a really short half-life. And so within 12 hours of that you know, first skip dose, I was sweaty and shaky and nauseated and I would sweat while I have goosebumps at the same time. Um, so, you know, that all started really quick. And so after a few days, we started calling our doctors, you know, starting with the prescribing doctor and he, he didn't have any suggestions. Um, and so we started calling all of our surgeons, all of our nursing teams from three different hospitals, and most of them wouldn't even talk to us. And so there was a combination of people saying, I don't know how to help you. And, uh, I'm not going to help you, right? You're not, you're not our job. Um, so yeah. So the first thing is nobody was helping me. Nobody understood tapering. Exactly. So, you know, the people who said, I don't know what to do. You know, especially like my prescribing surgeon, you know, to his credit, 
as soon as things got pretty bad after that first week, the symptoms ramped up. It got pretty scary. I wasn't sleeping much at all. I was very, very sick. Um, and as soon as it got a little bit scary, he said, you know, I, I'm out of my depth here. I obviously gave you advice, bad advice. I'm sorry. But then his only corrective was, I want you to go back on the meds, stabilize, and wait until you can find help, right? Wait until you can find someone competent. And I'm sure that sounded like a really reasonable plan to him since he was was facing the fact that he didn't know what to do with me. But the problem was nobody either knew what to do with me or would talk to me. And so if I go back on the meds, well, then I just undo whatever progress I've made and I have to face this again in the future. And nobody's given me any indication that'll be better next time because nobody will bring any expertise to bear on this. Um, and so, yeah, I, you know, I think a lot of it is nobody knows how to taper. A lot of these docs that you can prescribe the pills don't know how to get you off of them. But then I think there's just a ton of stigma too. You know, what did I sound like when I call, you know, general practitioners in the DC area just out of the blue and I'm a sweaty, shaky mess. And when they say no, I start crying and I'm desperate because I'm on opioids and can't get off them. Well, what I sound like is somebody who has a, an addiction and there's this terrible stigma surrounding addiction and they don't want to deal with me. So all these primary care doctors say, ooh, not it. Uh, and some of them recommend pain management and we call pain management docs and they say, oh, we prescribe opioids, but we don't deal with that whole tapering thing. That sounds like addiction medicine's job. But then really crucially, I call addiction medicine and they say, look, are you dealing pills? Are you taking more than you need? Are you you know, losing your job or your family? And I say, no, 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 no. And they say, look, you don't have an addiction. You're not our job. You just have a physical dependence on these things. Um, you know, why isn't your prescriber helping you? <laughs> Uh, to what I'd say, that's a great question. And, uh, and so, yeah, they passed me around like a hot potato. And I don't think most people make that distinction. They really don't. No. And it's, it's two problems that sometimes can be one and the same, but they can be distinct problems, right? Absolutely. And, and so, I mean, I should say that I'm, I'm doing a little bit of putting words into the mouth of, of some of these people I talk to, you know, nobody at the time was explaining to me the distinction between dependence and addiction, but that's what I was hearing. So I'll never forget this one woman I called the pain clinic that we called said, look, we don't taper patients. That's an addiction medicine problem. I said, so who should I call? I said, I don't know, a methadone clinic, which is just spectacularly bad advice, right? It's the exact wrong thing to do because methadone clinics have, uh, you know, I mean, they're, they're triaging. There are far too many patients for far too few resources, and they're putting people on to long-acting opioids to man maintain them, not just tapering people off their fast opioids, right? So I called, <laughs> so I called this methadone clinic not knowing any better, and I'll never forget the receptionist response. She was very sweet, and she listened to my story, and she said, oh, honey, you are not our job. <laughs> <laughs> it was like she was trying to be sweet and trying to let me down, but she was just, you know, she's dealing day in and day out with people who, if they don't help, might go out and, you know, take contaminated heroin and die that day. And I'm here like, hey, I'm sick because I can't get off these pills that the doctor prescribed me. And she's just like, yeah, they should take care of that because we don't have the resources to take you on. Yeah, but that, it, it does make perfect sense on one level, on a lot of levels, really. So you were not experiencing substance use disorder. 
you could have had you stayed on for long enough, right? Yep. You could have experienced that. But you weren't there. It wasn't a disease. It hadn't progressed to that point. And those folks are all dealing with the disease of substance use disorder. So I can see where she's coming from, can't you? Absolutely. I absolutely can. And so of all the people that I get angry at, I do not include the people in addiction medicine. Like they are so under-resourced and 10% of the people with substance use disorder in this country actually get specialty treatment. And only a third to a half of those are getting access to medications for OUD. Like they are so under-resourced and so stretched thin. They're not the right place to, <laughs> to place my anger or blame. So I was much more worried about the pain docs and the surgeons and the NPs and the PAs who work for the surgeons who are all putting their names on these prescriptions for drugs that they do not know how to manage over the long term. So it sounds as though what you've come across or what through life's experience has brought you to is almost, though, a separate class. You've got those folks that are dealing with those that, uh, you know, prescribe. You've got all the prescribers, I should say. And then on the other side, you've got all of the people in recovery that are helping people in recovery uh, from substance use disorder. But then you've got this middle area, uh, specialization for those that would be specializing in tapering, right? Exactly right. Yeah. And so, I mean, this was, this was the first thing I discovered, you know, so I, I had this terrible thing happen to me. The withdrawal experience was incredibly traumatizing. In my book, I spend a whole chapter describing that experience because I really want people to know, you know, people who haven't watched it up close and personal or haven't experienced it. I want them to know that it's not uncomfortable. It's not like the cost to be paid for these medicines that this is the sort of thing that can drive someone to kill themselves, right? I, I say in almost every talk I give, I say, remember, I just had my foot blown apart and every moment in opioid withdrawal was the worst moment of my life, right? None of the pain from, from medical trauma or surgery touched it. So I had this event, I had this traumatic event of going through withdrawal and not being helped, being abandoned by the medical system. But when I got out, it took a while and then my researcher brain started to take over, right? Because at first I'm just angry or sad or feel abandoned. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm a, I'm a professor that's, you know, I research uh, for a living. And so I start turning the story over in my head and, and Saudi and I tell it to more people, to close friends and family who, who we had locked all of them out, you know, for this whole time. We start to let them in and more and more people say, Jesus, how could this happen? Let me explore that. Why did you lock them out? Because, I mean, you're, you're going down this road, which is a completely different road for the, you know, uh, what we hear about daily, which is those that end up suffering from substance use disorder. And they're so ashamed of, you know, the disease and everything that comes along with it and everything that they've had to compromise and their moral fiber and all, all of that. So you've got none of that baggage. So why did you lock them out? That's a good question. I've spent much of the last four years, four and a half years thinking about this. Um, I never thought about it consciously. So it was, it was never the case that during this month of hell, I thought, you know, hey, I won't, I won't reach out for help to any of my colleagues or my family. I won't reach out because I'm embarrassed or anything like that. Like there, were, there was no conscious thought. We just did it. We just turned inward and we hid from the world. So what I think happens is I think stigma bleeds. That's what I think happens. And so 
in the same way that a lot of people don't understand the difference between dependent addiction, you know, just kind of colloquially, uh, and that runs deep, by the way, I have clinicians in every audience I talk to who hear my story and say, so how long have you been in recovery? Or, you know, hey, addicts don't usually look like you. And, you know, they're, they're trying, they don't get it, right? And so it's not just colloquially that people don't understand it. I think we internalize this image, right? Withdrawal is kind of deeply embedded in this history we have that is the story that we tell about people suffering from addiction. And so it's the, the shaky, sweaty, desperate man that is a kind of like bogeyman of, of our history with substance use disorder. And I can only kind of reconstruct this for myself. Like I said, I never consciously thought about it, but I work at Johns Hopkins. I'm friends and colleagues with world-class physicians in all different fields. And they all saw pictures of my gory foot, right? My orthopedic surgery friends saw my x-rays. We talked about my exploding foot over lunch, right? They all knew the details of my clearly medical trauma. And for some reason, when I have access of the kind that most people don't have, I didn't exploit it and I didn't reach out. And the only way I can explain that to myself is a kind of internalized stigma that I didn't even recognize. If I just gotten over myself and reached out, you know, I could have had access to the very best people and, and could have been through this. Um, but yeah, we, we hide in the shadows with various sorts of, you know, psychological or mental health sorts of issues. And that's how this was presenting to me. So you dug in as a researcher. Once you went through kind of the grieving process, well, geez, uh, all the, I can't even put words to everything that you went through. But, but once you were all the way through that, kind of that stuff that you had to deal with at that point, you started to roll up your sleeves and go to work on this as a researcher and kind of came up with some answers. What are the answers you came up with there, Travis? Yeah, so the, the, the point that you made was the first point that I came to, which is, holy cow, we've overlooked something. Uh, we talk about pain medicine, uh, you know, practiced both by specialists, but also by every family doc in the country over the last 20 or 30 years, um, who became familiar, sometimes too familiar with using opioids. And so we talk about prescribing in the form of writing a prescription and sending someone home happy that they can take a pill and feel better. And then we talk about the very other end, which is addiction, substance use disorder. And on that end, we are certainly under-resourcing and there's certainly a ton of stigma that has to be worked out. And we are not good at addiction in general, but we at least demarcate the problem and we know the sorts of help that's needed at least public health folks and a lot of clinicians and scientists know that this needs to be destigmatized and treated like a health condition. And we have medications that can help, at least for opioids. Like we know a decent amount about that. And then there's this big gap in the middle that no one is talking about. And that is what I call routine dependence, which sometimes bleeds into something that uh, a scientist and clinician, Ajay Manapra, has called complex persistent dependence, which is what happens if you're like me, but then stay on the pills for 22 years or something, um, and, you, and you escalate to really massive doses. And all that stuff in the middle is barely talked about. And we don't have even the demarcation of the interventions that would help with those patients. 
And so the thing that just blew my mind, you know, so I, the first essay I wrote went in the journal Health Affairs, um, and it kind of blew up and it got excerpted by the Washington Post. And eventually a year later, this led to me doing a TED Talk. And this is kind of like what stuck me into this new life that I did not know I was signing up for, by the way. And that all started with the identification of something that as soon as I said it, everybody immediately recognized was true. And that is that we've ignored an entire population, an entire set of problems, and we're not even talking about the interventions to solve them. So we've got a name for it now. Routine dependence. Is that the name? That's what I call the sort of problem of uh, people like me and even easier cases, people who have a hip replacement or a knee replacement, who have abdominal surgery, harder cases, but still fairly routine because of the amount that we do them. We should be able to be practiced or say cancer patients who have a very survivable cancer. So they're going to want to live a life without pain meds eventually, but we just kind of throw pills at them because they have cancer and Jesus, it would be, it would be inhumane not to give them this pain medication. Um, so they'll develop dependence over the longer term, sickle cell patients who are recurring crises. We have really routine cases that include all sorts of surgeries that require more than a few days opioids. And then these more serious conditions um, like cancer, like sickle cell, and then, and then other harder cases that have been treated with opioids over the past couple of decades. And then the less routine cases, the cases where maybe we never should have used chronic opioid therapy in the first place, but for a couple of decades, clinicians were told this is safe and effective, and that you're kind of inhumane if you don't give your patients access to this drug. And so for a generalized low back pain that might have responded better to exercise physical therapy in an occasional NSAID, we used escalating doses of opioids. And so those patients now you know, 15 years later or 20 years later are on really whopping doses. Um, and so that's a different patient population. So yes, routine cases all the way up to these very complex cases that fall short of addiction because they don't have the behavioral components of substance use disorder, but they definitely have the dependence criteria met. So the interventions then for those to match those? Yeah, they're really, really straightforward in some cases and really hard in others. Um, so the, the low-hanging fruit is we get much, much better at tapering for the simple cases. It's not rocket science to taper somebody off opioids if they just have a kind of mild um, dependence. They don't have any behavioral issues. They're motivated. Um, they've got a support system. Like there, there are not quite algorithms because it needs to be individualized, but there are good rules of thumb. So for instance, you don't start anybody at more than a five to 10% reduction over the first week or two as a trial, you see how they respond. And very often, if they aren't incredibly sensitive to the withdrawal, you can taper somebody at that five to 10% dose reduction per week, taking the occasional break to just let them catch their breath from the process. Um, but sometimes it's harder and so you slow down, you mitigate, there are some medications that are used off-label to, to mitigate the withdrawal symptoms. All of this can be spelled out and Post-2015, it's begun to get spun out. Um, in the most 21st century moment of my life, the CDC tweeted at me after I published my first essay, and the, so the CDC Injury Prevention Center tweeted, you know, hey, this is exactly why we've created a tapering guide for, for chronic opioid therapy patients. And so they came up with this, you know, four-page pretty simple tapering guide. And now new ones have come out since then. I've been involved consulting on several of these. 
So we have pretty good tools for the more simple cases, but you have to have clinicians incentivized to use them in systems that are set up to allow physicians to actually take the time to do this and to, to require or encourage them to see this as a problem. And that's the main obstacle. So you, you have the intervention is you teach people how to taper, but what we need is we need some kind of structural and policy solutions that our, our healthcare system really isn't set up to recognize right now. So is there something on the forefront to address that? Um, right now, I would say, unfortunately, it's pretty institution specific. Um, when I get buy-in from large populations, from you know, a set of institutions or a you know, healthcare organization, you know, very often they're thinking, look, family docs, general practitioners, this is just their job. You know, they prescribe opioids. They have to de-prescribe opioids, too. So I, I convince them of the obligation. Hey, you can't write a prescription for a pill that you can't manage. You have to do the rest of it, too. But then they just kind of respond by putting it on the doctor. And a real big problem is that we don't have what's called an ICD-10 code for tapering consultation, which means the doctor can't get paid for that time. So the incentive structure here is not good. If doctors aren't going to get paid for something, especially when we're tagging on more and more obligations to them all the time, they're just not going to be very good at doing it. So that sort of big picture structural solution is not being addressed yet. So sometimes uh, smaller systems will step in, the individual institution. So I've worked with some hospitals and hospital systems that say, okay, we're going to solve this problem with a kind of creative team solution. So if it's an orthopedic surgery center, their surgeons are not going to take opioids. Surgeons are making, you know, three or $400,000 a year, maybe more. They're not going to spend their time tapering patients, managing them, talking them through withdrawal. But you can build up an NP team, a nurse practitioner team, or you can build up a PA team who's trained to do exactly this. And that's the sort of um, structural solution that's being talked about one-off right now. I'm worried that America is going to have their anger stated by identifying a villain, suing them into oblivion and moving on. So to be super clear, I'm happy that, say, Purdue Pharma has been sued into oblivion. I think that was appropriate. I think that the company should become a public trust, that they should have no money that's in personal hands, right? But I don't want everyone to be comfortable in the wake of that saying, thank God we solved this problem, because no, we didn't. We haven't done anything to assure that it's not going to happen in the future. And we have 2.6 million people living with opioid use disorder in the country right now who need help. And those big structural solutions are what I want to talk about. INSYS is a kind of special case of corporate evil run amok. And the much more mundane systems that allow profit to drive a marketing of drugs to the American people is really what was responsible for this spark that has contributed to this drug overdose crisis. And so I don't want us to get too caught up on the really spectacularly bad actors uh, who might get what, what we think is coming to them and thinking that we solved the problem because the structure has to just be deeply you know, reformed. The fact that Purdue was able to get the FDA to sign off on their claim 
that their drug was less addictive because of its, you know, um, extended release formulation, which they had no evidence for, and yet it went through. And this is why they eventually had to plead guilty to misleading, uh, criminal misbranding, right? Those sorts of really almost mundane, sure, it was bad action, but it was just profit motive doing its thing in the pharmaceutical company, right? That's what I'm much more worried about. So that's thing one, uh, the bad actors uh, of the NSYS form are kind of standouts and I'm worried about the system. And thing two is criminalization is such a big part of what's wrong with the way we treat drug use in this country that I actually don't want to cheer too much when we throw people in prison. Now, I should be really careful. I want <laughs> I want to hold rich, uh, powerful people accountable in exactly the same way we hold the most vulnerable accountable, which we hardly ever do. So like insofar as we're throwing a bunch of low-level people who use and deal drugs in jail, certainly the insist therapeutics executives should go to jail. But jail's just not a great solution for so much of the other thing we're doing, right? We throw people in jail to try to solve the drug problem and it's never worked. It's not working now. It sometimes worsens the crisis. So I also just, I am a little bit slow to cheer jail as a solution to the crisis because we are so focused on criminalization as a solution to our drug problem already. Does that make sense? I really don't want to say, I don't want to come off sounding like, yay, pharma, we should defend them because obviously that's not me. I just am more skeptical that this is going to be all things good in the future. Next, Travis talks a little bit about the changes that need to be made to reimbursement in order to remove the built-in disincentives that physicians have in order to help their patients taper down their pain medication. The first thing that we need to do is we need to make it so that um, insurers and, and Medicare, Medicaid, so payers will in fact reimburse physicians for the work that we're asking them to do. So we need to clearly identify the scope of work, uh, formulate it into a code that they can put into a system so that their time is reimbursed. And uh, some people say, you know, oh, you know, rich doctors crying, woe is me because we're asking them to do extra work. But we are asking doctors to do one thing after another and not reimbursing them for it. And it's a huge public health crisis because they're engaging in burnout. We're not able to get physicians to do a bunch of jobs. So, yeah, I mean, we need doctors to want to do this work well because if you don't incentivize them, if you don't put the, um, if you don't have a reimbursement structure that, that uh, you know, helps them see this as part of their job, it's just going to be one more of the million things that we're constantly asking them to do that they can't bill for, right? So basically the, the idea here is if you want a bunch of actors to engage in the right action, a really good idea is setting up the system so that they are not disincentivized from doing that thing, right? Um, so yeah, so we have to come up with, you know, the scope of work that they then can be reimbursed for and make sure that the payers are on board with it. Um, we probably also just need to recognize, and so this is more diffuse than a more kind of abstract recommendation. We just have to recognize that all of this work is really hard. So pain medicine is really hard, kind of upfront deciding what somebody's pain is, uh, what the appropriate response to that pain is, you know, having the training to be able to diagnose that, 
But then once they're on the medication, being able to do what we call behavioral health assessment, just to decide how well they're doing on this medication. Do they need more expertise than the doctor can can provide them? Do they need a pain medicine clinic? Do they need an addiction clinic? So are they actually starting to engage in behavior that indicates that they're developing a substance use disorder? That all takes some more training and more time, right? So kind of more diffusely, one of the things I often say to doctors is, we just have to recognize how hard this work is. And if that sounds dumb, (laughs) it sounds like, of course, medicine is hard. I mean, let's just think about it. We never acted like it was hard before. We acted like doctors should be able to prescribe pills because they kill pain. Remember, these are called painkillers. And it should take about the same level of expertise that prescribing antibiotics for bacterial infection takes, right? You go into your general practitioner who's never done any pain residency, never done any specialized training, and we should expect them to just listen to your pain, say, oh, yeah, it sounds like you've done something to your back. Not much I can do for it, but I can give you oxycodone. Um, which, you know, has these properties and will make you feel better if you take it every four hours. And that's just not nearly good enough. So this is the kind of diffuse thing that we have to recognize the complexity of pain medicine, of the drugs themselves, of opioids, and the complexity of the joining between pain medicine and these problems of dependence and ultimately substance use disorder um, kind of at the end of the spectrum. So Travis, what do you want people to take away from your book? I think what I want them to take away is that pain, pain medicine, dependence, and addiction are these profoundly difficult topics that so many of us have experienced firsthand. And if we haven't experienced firsthand, uh, the numbers are such that we've now experienced, you know, second or third hand, and that it's an all hands on deck problem, right? To fix pain medicine, to connect it to the work that needs to be done, treating dependence and addiction, to fix the broader drug overdose crisis, which only connects with pain medicine in this small overlap point, to do all of these things is going to require basically everybody in America to care about it, to talk about it, to destigmatize it, to see the people suffering as full humans with dignity worthy of respect, um, not to, to push them into the alley, right, where it's dark and we can't see them to help them, and then to care enough to say, talk to their legislators about this issue and vote for people who will put re- real resources behind it. So one of the things I say in the conclusion is, I think my book is incredibly uncomfortable. Two-thirds of it talks about just how bad we are at pain medicine, and the last third talks about just how bad we are at addiction. and if you are not uncomfortable by the time you finished the book, I've not done my job. And the reason is because when we're comfortable, we don't call out for action. So I want people to be uncomfortable and angry enough that they start to lean on the people in power around them to do something about it. And the reason it's going to take that is because the experts in this field say that just the drug overdose crisis, just the fact that people are dying from drugs right now, not touching any of the other aspects of the complexity, the addiction that doesn't result in death, um, the pain medicine problems, just addressing the drug overdose crisis. is going to take $100 billion over the next five years as a start. And there's no way politicians in America are going to put that kind of money forward if we don't stand up and demand it. 
that's what I want people to do. Well, Travis, I want to thank you for your time today. This has been incredible. I am so grateful that you asked me on. And, uh, you know, if you have any more questions, anytime, happy to chat. We've been joined today by Travis Reeder, the author of In Pain, a book that chronicles his dependence on pain medication following a motorcycle accident and the surprising inability of the medical profession to help him taper off when he no longer needed it. My name is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. 